May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Good morning. It has been a week. Rain, fire, flood, wind, a wild and crazy week. And for Troy and I, we grew up in Houston. I've watched the freeway where I learned to drive. And mind you, it's a good thing you were not there. There I was, sitting behind that car, driving down 59. This week, a lake, a river. Unbelievable. So here we are. Last week, we found Jesus and the disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And as Dean Troy described, they were on the other side, where they were confronted with the question, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks the ground-trembling truth. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In Peter's great discovery, Jesus declares him the rock and proclaims that he will hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Must have been a heady moment for this fisherman who not too long ago had been mending nets and cleaning fish in Galilee. Standing in this outpost of Rome, surrounded by every conceivable form of myth, idol, and religious expression, the disciples of Jesus must have been exhilarated. They had staked their lives on a winner. And not just a winner, the winner. Having left their homes, families, jobs, they risk everything. And in these days, they had witnessed a raft of miracles, healings, feeding 5,000. And they had listened to prophetic teaching, wondrous stories, parables of the kingdom of heaven. How amazing This moment, payoff time, the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for, the one who would raise up an army and drive out the Romans, the one who would save the great family of God, the children of Israel, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How quickly they had forgotten the earlier admonition of Jesus When they reached the other side, watch out, he said, and beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They thought he said this because they had forgotten the bread. He reminded them again of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. It was not bread he was concerned with, but the false teaching of the power brokers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that little story is a foreshadowing of today. 
For the great discovery, Jesus is the Messiah, quickly turns to disappointment and rebuke. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The way of human beings. The way of domination and power. If any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This prophetic moment, this passion prediction, is repeated 13 times in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Four more times in John's Gospel. This is not just a throwaway line. It is no redaction after the fact, not editing by the early church. This awkward and stilted language, these third-person statements of the Son of Man, these reflect an authentic prediction, an awareness on the part of Jesus who could read the signs and accept and acknowledge that the likely outcome of this last journey to Jerusalem would be death. And his disciples and we don't really want to hear this. We want to be saved from all the forces that weigh heavy on our lives, all the disorder, dissension, disaster, the chaos of floods and wind and fire. We want to be saved. But take up your cross. Well, after a while, even today, take up your cross becomes a cliché on the lips of many a preacher a literary device, code words for being a good Christian, behaving in a clearly defined, nice and moral way. We think Jesus said to be nice. We're okay with that. But when spiritual language loses its power, and is distorted to seduce, to seduce us with more appealing promises, promises of prosperity, success, or perhaps moral superiority. The gospel then succumbs 
to systems of domination and power. Such messages reflect values that earn the rebuke given to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Our difficulty with this hard news, the news of suffering and death, we want to displace it. But in fact, the poverty of that other message, that message of the prosperity gospel, that must be exposed. We were never promised to be successful or wealthy or beautiful, much as I would have hoped. That message bears no hope to those who have just lost everything. That message that God is promising that if we're good, we'll get the goods, that message is utterly bankrupt. Walter Wink writes these words, Like a fledgling scratching the inside of its shell, this son of man, this child of the human, wants to be hatched in us. But our world finds the human child, this son of man, an intolerable threat. And it deludes us into believing that what is in our best interest is to abandon our best interest. We are seduced into believing that we are competing for a limited amount of prestige, wealth, and honor in an economy of scarcity. And finally, that system, it reserves the right to pronounce acceptance or rejection. You are acceptable. You are not. It is calculated to crush the spirit and to produce predictable and compliant people. Get behind me, Satan. That is not the life we live in Christ. That is not the story of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And that is not our story. Several months ago, some of us staked out the ground at the entrance of Indian School Park. We were representing Trinity Cathedral, and we were positioned across the street from the Westboro Baptist Church protesters. The Pride Parade ended at that intersection. We're on the west there on the east. The loudspeaker from the Westboro group was used as a weapon, and all were assaulted with hate speech in the name of Jesus, hate speech that was unrelenting for hours. At one point, the speaker turned to us, screaming that God would burn our church to the ground. I did not bother to respond to this violent voice. It was not worth it. But I did say this to those around me. What that guy doesn't know 
is that we've already burned. <laughs> and we, in fact, are a church that is on fire. We burn, but we are not consumed. Because this is a place that knows the cost of discipleship. This is a place that knows what it means to be persecuted in the name of Jesus. And one more thing, and I risk saying this uh, because I might not ever be in this pulpit again, but I will say it. As a single, celibate, white, straight, old woman, the Nashville statement may reflect values that are held closely by some, but it does not reflect the gospel call to a life of sacrifice and offering for the sake of others. And that's a cross I'm willing to die on. Jesus, the Son of Man, wisdom's child, the beloved, calls us just as he called those disciples of long ago. And we must leave behind our citizenship in this world and become resident aliens, part of the ragtag band of losers who have discovered that we have been given a gift. We have been given eyes to see as God sees. The gift of Jesus in his offering on the cross is the gift of sight. We see with the eyes of love, and we are called to be servants in action. We are privileged to make our lives an offering. The truth truth of sacrifice, of standing up against the powers that be, railing with every ounce of strength against the injustice of a domination culture, recognizing our own privilege, our own prejudice, our own discomfort in the face of poverty and homelessness, and above all, recognizing our own fear that our lives might spin out of control, we still take up the cross, and follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem, crucifixion, death, and we live in the holy hope of new life, resurrection. Henri Nouwen said we are on the move from false certainty to true uncertainty. We watched people this week take their boats out into the most treacherous places. They are our witnesses for this week. People who went into uncertainty for the sake of others. What happens through this watershed event that makes up the great discovery, you are the Messiah, the great disappointment, And the great rebuke, get behind me, Satan, is nothing less than a wholesale change of heart, mind, and soul. And this is what happened to the disciples. Like the rest of us, they had been socially constructed to serve selves that were at the center of their universe. 
That is, until Jesus called them to a different way. Their minds being conformed to this world needed to be transformed through the renewing by following a different path, the way of the cross. And what is this way? It is not a way of everlasting depression as some grim, sullen saints make it out to be. It is not the way of eternal duty and drudgery. Rather, it is a life given away in love. It is a life freed from the cage of self-protection and insistent security. It is a life lived in self-offering to God. That is our spiritual worship. It is a life risk, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of congratulations. For Jesus, the Son of Man, the human being, and most wondrously, Wisdom's child, the incarnate God, lives in us. Peter's life testifies to the point. Jesus did not leave him in the great rebuke. He left him with the great commission. This commissioning happened at the end of the Gospel of John. It was early morning by the seashore, and Peter, in his ready-fire-aim attitude, He leaped from the boat, naked, to swim to Jesus on the shore. And after the disciples and Jesus had finished breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Do you love me? Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It was then that Jesus gave Peter his great commission. Feed my lambs, not once, Twice, three times, Jesus tells him, Feed my lambs. And Peter makes that the commission of his life, all the way to Rome, where in 61 AD, head down, he was crucified. Pick up your cross and follow me. The pathway is ultimately to glory. Amen.